All right, so good to see you. Grab your Bibles if you have one with you, and if you don't, uh, there should be one in a chair around you. We'll be somewhere around page 759. We're in the book of Matthew. We're journeying through Matthew's gospel, his account of Jesus' life and ministry and death and resurrection, and we are studying verse by verse through this awesome and massive book. So we're going to be in uh, Matthew chapter 5 this morning. I want to go ahead and just read our passage. We're going to read um, chapter 5, verses 1 through 12, and take a minute and pray so God would help us after we read, and then begin to journey through it. This is Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. It says, seeing the crowds, he, Jesus, went up on the mountain And when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. God, as we uh, seek to understand, as we have just read your word, I pray that you would make it a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path and the most practical real life sense of those words, that where we lack wisdom, where these principles are darkness to our intellect, that you would shine through a work of your grace into our minds to help us understand. And God, I I pray with fervency that where there's familiarity with these words, that you would protect us from a familiarity that breeds a sense of apathy to these words. I pray that indifference would have no place in our time together this morning. I pray that pride would have no place, that there be no pride that is dismissive of these words or pride that demonstrates itself in self-righteousness to try to perform, to earn good standing in your presence, but that we be clothed with humility before you this morning. Spirit of God, I pray that I would be a help to your people, and I pray that the words that I speak would be your words. For the glory and the fame of your name, Father, through the life that is found in your Son that we get to enjoy again this morning. It's in his name I pray. Amen. Amen. So having read um, what, what is known as the Beatitudes here, I want to give you an alternative 
to these Beatitudes that I would submit is probably a little bit more culturally relevant or true to our times. So let me just share this cultural version of the Beatitudes. Blessed are the prideful and self-sufficient, for they will be successful. Blessed are those who follow their truth. No one can tell them their ways are wrong. Blessed are the powerful, for they answer to no one. Blessed is the man who has the most stuff, for he has no worries. Blessed are the celebrities, for they are loved by the masses. And blessed is the man who follows the crowd. Persecution and loneliness won't be his companions. The marquee of modern culture scrolls those types of messages, whether subtly or overtly, and many more, trying to, to give us a picture of, like, hey, if you do these things, there will be a, a measure of blessing and tranquility, ease, happiness in your life. You just do you, right? You've heard those, that phrase before, <clears throat> assuring all who follow a path of success and blessings. Matthew 5, 1 through 11, known as the Beatitudes, are characteristics that should increasingly be present in the lives of the people of God and the hearts of Christians. So if you were to define Beatitude, if you look up in Webster's Dictionary, even if you define the Greek or the Hebrew word for blessed, there's a very similar tone which, which has the ring of happy. Happy is the one or happy is the the man, a place of supreme blessed, blessedness or happiness. The blessing, happiness, security, and stability falls to the one, ultimately, that we see in the Bible, who builds correctly, to the one who builds on the right foundation. And one of the things, as I read this this week and have been studying it, one of the, the risks that I see, if I could say it this way, one of the bad attitudes toward the Beatitudes would be this, is that you is that we can, we can take these in, I think anytime we come across lists in the Bible, there's an inherent risk to the self-righteous one within us, where we want to evaluate how we're doing, or we want to just be able to check off the box and be able to say, based on these, this list of things I'm called to do, I'm therefore okay, relatively speaking, but that's not what this list is. And so what I want to do is I want to I frame in for us via the, the beginning in Matthew 5 and the end of Matthew 7. Matthew 5 through 7, and many of you know this, is called the Sermon on the Mount. It's a giant sermon that Jesus gives, his first sermon. He sits down on an obscure mountain in Galilee somewhere, having healed people and preach the gospel of the kingdom, calling people to repent, and many follow, many are curious. And so this, this mass of people, his disciples included, gather to him. He sits down like a rabbi would, and he begins to teach, and he preaches a massive sermon. So chapter 5 through 7, I'd encourage you to read the whole thing at once, because one of the challenges of preaching this is we can kind of break it up into little bite-sized pieces and miss the fact that this was a, this is a whole sermon, a whole teaching. But let's read it this way. So if you look in verse 1 and 2 of Matthew 5, what we just read, 
It says, seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them. What I want you to do is I want you to pan all the way forward to Matthew chapter 7, the very end of Matthew chapter 7, because this kind of brackets in everything in between it. In verses 24 through 27, this is what Jesus says. He says, everyone then who hears these words of mine, what are these words? Everything between Matthew 5.1 and that statement right there. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. So Matthew 5, 1 through 12 provides, as it were, like building blocks for the man, for the woman, for the child who's going to build their house, their life on solid rock, this is the initial building blocks of that life. But it's not qualifications, as it were. It's not like a resume to get you to heaven. As I mentioned last week, the word, it's a little bit more like a complexion than it is a resume. And one commentator put this way, these are not entry requirements for outsiders, but a declaration about insiders. They're indicative statements. This is what you are like or what you are to be like. And yes, they're to be pursued. There are going to be ways in which as we read through this, you'd be like, I'm not doing that the way that I should. I would anticipate, and in fact, I would pray that we'd all be started to evaluate the ways we need to grow in these things. But these are not qualifications, as it were. If you just do these seven or eight things, then it'll get you to heaven. That's not what's being said here. This is a description of the kingdom person. When someone trusts in the king, Jesus, the Messiah, these things will be true about them because they have the the heart of the king beating within them. The life of the Savior filling where there used to be no life. So the stable and strong house built on the rock is the man or woman who builds their life on the king and the principles of his kingdom. You could say it this way. It's about kingdom living. It's about authentic Christianity. And the religious elite among the Jews, some of whom seem to be present in this mass because in the sermon, Jesus speaks to the Pharisees and the scribes as religious Jewish elite trying to dismantle their self-righteousness because they promoted an artificial outward righteousness based on the law. But Jesus preaches or he establishes a genuine righteousness flowing from a supernatural change of heart, effectively saying kingdom people live in a manner consistent with the kingdom. Genuine repentance, the word that he preached, repent for the kingdom of heaven is drawn near The kingdom of God that comes in the person and work of Jesus, it's beginning through his work, physically coming into time and space as the king on the earth, preaching and being crucified and risen, and one day the kingdom will finally be consummated. But ultimately in this moment, the call is genuine repentance. It leads to genuine righteousness. And we don't like to talk about righteousness. It feels 
uncomfortable because it is uncomfortable to the hearts of sinful men that even after the miracle of rebirth, having trusted in Jesus, we still struggle with sin and we bristle at the call to righteousness and holiness, but these blessed statements really unpack genuine repentance that leads to genuine righteousness. And the word blessed or blessed would have been really familiar to the Jewish masses who were following Jesus. Let me, let me demonstrate this just really quickly. I'm going to rattle off several psalms. We'll have them up here, but I'm not going to spend time. I'm just going to illustrate the point. There's a version of the Old Testament, which was originally written in Hebrew, that was written in Greek. It's called the Septuagint. And so you can see words commonly used in the New Testament, written in Greek, and then going backward into the Old Testament where the same Greek word is used. And it gives you some connection between old and new. And this is one of those cases where the word blessed is in Matthew 5 is applied all over the place in the Old Testament. But particularly in the Psalms, let me just read a few of these to you. And again, it's a Jewish audience listening to Jesus' words. They're going to be very familiar with the Psalms. And so let me just give you a few. Psalm 1-1, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, the same Greek word, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. O taste and see that the Lord is good. Psalm 34, 8. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Psalm 44. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust. Psalm 41, 1. Blessed is the one who considers the poor. Psalm 94, 12. Blessed is the man who the Lord disciplines. Psalm 106, 3. Blessed are they who observe justice, who do righteousness at all times. Psalm 112, 1. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in his commandments. And now I'm going to introduce you to you, your new favorite verse, which is Proverbs 8, 34. Blessed is the one who listens to me. If your wisdom personified. So in Proverbs, it's speaking the voice of wisdom. So you parents, you could use that on your kids, just give them context later on, but early on it might be pretty effective. Blessed is the one who listens to the voice of wisdom and heeds wisdom's words. Happy is the one. The actions and posture toward God and others represented in each of these statements results in a sustained, ongoing blessedness. In Proverbs 29, 18, it's one of the last ones I'll use before we get into these terms. We're only going to cover the first couple of Beatitudes this morning. Proverbs 29, 18. I referred to this last summer when we were going through our parenting series, talking about vision. Proverbs 29, 18 says, where there is no prophetic vision, the people cast off restraint. They go this way and that, trying to manufacture a standard of their own. But blessed is he who keeps the law. Proverbs 29, 18 this prophetic vision is the law of God. So when you look back on Exodus chapter 20 and Mount Sinai and the law and the various laws that kind of elaborated on the Ten Commandments, you could summarize the law as essentially this. The law is God's vision for what it looks like to live a life that pleases him. So the prophetic vision God has for those who would follow him, a life lived that would please him, is the law. It is the law given in Exodus 20 and elaborated on in Deuteronomy throughout the book. So Mount Sinai, the law, was God's vision for what it looked like to live a life that pleases him. Now, Jesus proclaims, in a sense, kind of a new law from a different mountain. 
an obscure mountain in Galilee, Jesus ratifies, as it were, the law. And he's going to talk about the commandments. He doesn't undo it. In fact, he came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And he talks about how the one is blessed who, who teaches and fulfills the law. But what he does, he actually raises the bar. We're going to see that throughout this sermon. He's like, you've heard it said this, but what I say to you, and he raises the bar even higher. And in doing so, he ushers people into his presence, which I'll get to in just a moment. But Jesus proclaims from another mountain a new law, a vision for kingdom blessing through kingdom living. So seeing the crowds, he goes up on the mountain, he sits down, his disciples come to him. Assumedly, there are others gathered around as well. I don't know how long chapter 5 through 7 took for him to preach. Assumedly, it wasn't in one sitting. Probably reasonable to anticipate that. But the first thing he said is, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of of heaven. If I could restate it this way, stable happiness falls to those who acknowledge their spiritual desperation before God. And we like to feel sufficient, like we like to feel independent. We like the feeling of self-reliance, that we have the goods and the ability and the resources to do this or that. But when it comes to spiritual things, we don't have the resources or the ability. The Bible paints the picture very clearly that all of us are spiritually bankrupt. And we dwell in a spiritual land of poverty. I want to highlight this in one place in the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation, in chapter 3, it's one of the churches. So Jesus is addressing these churches that were real churches at the time, but also kind of described the church at large. And the church of Laodicea was the one that he rebuked in a particular way. And he says this in chapter 3, Revelation, verses 15 through 20. He says, I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. It'd be good for you to be either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich. I have prospered and I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor is our word, blind and naked. And the words from Jesus go on, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. So I want you to take notice of the issue in Laodicea. It was what they said that Jesus took issue with. And what they said was a, was a motto of independence and self-reliance. If I could repeat the words, you say, I'm rich. I have prospered. I need nothing. I've been successful. I have no needs. And most of us haven't had the experience of poverty. Certainly as compared to the rest of the world, most of us haven't had the experience of tangible, physical, financial poverty. 
But if you could just use your imagination for a moment, and certainly those that we've had a chance to minister to and interact with who are on the streets around us, one of the things you see so quickly is the feeling of desperation when you don't have any resources. Like, I have no money. I have no job. I have, I have no family. I have no opportunity. I don't have any pathway to try to get ahead in life. And if you can just imagine the feeling of desperation that comes from that, transfer that to spiritual things. Those who are poor in spirit feel the magnitude of that type of need spiritually. I don't, I don't have anything to bring. I feel the ache of my condition. I, don't, I, don't, I can't forge a path forward based on my own resources and energy and personality and works. I don't have anything to move the needle in the realm of acceptability before God. And if you can take a moment and just use your imagination to think in that way about spiritual things, that's something of what Jesus is highlighting. That all of us Every single one of us have fallen short of the glory of God and we're destitute, spiritually speaking, before God. We're objects of his wrath. We all deserve to be condemned because we've broken his law. And so when you, when I, get near to that reality, when we feel the magnitude of it, this is what I prayed earlier, there is no place for indifference or independence when you truly understand that. Because how could you look at like, God, I don't have anything to bring to you and I know I need you. You made me. I don't have anything to offer that would commend me to your sight. And when you feel that, how could we be indifferent? That's why he rebukes the Laodicean church the way he does. I'd rather you just be cold or hot. Like you can't sit in the middle thinking somehow being lukewarm is sufficient. Because you do, I spit you out of my mouth. It's better for you to be one extreme or the other, certainly better from an eternal standpoint that you be warm and or hot to the things of God. But independence and self-reliance are crushed under the weight of the realization that we are powerless to change our spiritual position. If you're a Christian this morning, at some point in your life, you've understood that. And one of the uniquenesses of preaching the gospel as a pastor is to reacquaint you with the very thing that at different moments has struck your heart with awe and wonder and awakened you to the life that's found in God and to try to amaze you once again at the grace of God. Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven belongs to such people. Indifference has no place in the kingdom because it's antithetical to the anthem of repentance associated with drawing near to the king. And so this lowliness of spirit that is the pathway to true riches in the kingdom also causes us to mourn when we disregard and disobey God's vision for our lives. Verse 4, blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. Now, one of the things I would say here is that like, we can look at verse 4, and we should in some ways, look at verse 4 and feel like the warmth of the comfort of God 
generally speaking, and doubtless there are many in this room that need to feel the broad weight of the comfort of God, that God is near to the brokenhearted and he heals those who are crushed in spirit. And if you feel like you resonate with those two terms, brokenhearted, crushed in spirit, I want you to know that from the word of God, his promise for you is he's near to the brokenhearted and he heals those who are crushed in spirit. And that's a ministry to your heart this morning from the word of God. Just preach it, just say it and let it land. He demonstrated his nearness to our fallenness and our, our mourning and our brokenness when Jesus became a man and put on flesh and dwelt among us and was tempted in all ways as we are, yet without sin. He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He's near to the brokenhearted and heals those who are crushed in spirit. And Paul gives a beautiful depiction of God's comforting care in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. He's writing a letter to this church in Corinth, the Christians, in the midst of their affliction. He says, blessed be the the God of all comfort, the Father of all mercies, who comforts us in all our afflictions. He goes on to say, he's like the very same comfort that you get from God, you get to transfer to be a comfort to other people. And that's a wonderful ministry to those who are comforted. Many of you have experienced that. But let me just say this. I don't believe this passage in Matthew 5 is actually referring firstly to that kind of comfort. In the context, as it relates to genuine, authentic righteousness that Jesus seems to be pointing to. The mourning seems to be related to breaking God's law. So when we, when we diverge away, or when we move away from the vision of God's law for us, there should be a, a grief and a mourning that comes with that. When we live inconsistent with who we are as kingdom people, it leads to godly mourning because the heart of the king as it beats within his people will break over sin. It'll break over sin. Godly sorrow is the evidence of God's heart beating within us. Godly sorrow sees sin as a deviation from life and blessing. Because indifference and self-reliance can't coexist with repentance, the life of God within us creates mourning, a righteous regret, an authentic anguish over violating God's law. This is another spot we don't like to talk about this much. It's not as comfortable preaching on this as it is just to talk about the good news. The fact of the matter is, like, we desperately need to mourn over sin the way that God mourns over sin. And, and the principal reason is because it demonstrates the life of Jesus within us. Because apart from his work in us, we don't mourn over sin. It's only those who are in the, the kingdom of heaven, spiritually speaking now, ultimately in the end. It's only those who are kingdom people who mourn over sin and demonstrate in doing so that they belong to the king. And the world needs to see the difference that the king makes in his people. Doesn't, doesn't the world need to see that? And part of that is being grieved rightly over sin. 
I can't even remember what message it was, but I feel like fairly recently I highlighted in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, and I'll read just a portion of that, but Paul talks about the grief that another letter he sent to the church had caused them, addressing sin in their midst, notably. He writes them a letter, and apparently it caused a sense of grief and sorrow within them, and he says, hey, I'm not rejoicing over the fact that you were made sad by my letter, but I rejoice over the fact that whatever sorrow you felt led you to repentance. And he, and he distinguishes between uh, a worldly sorrow that leads to death and a godly sorrow that leads to repentance and life. And this is what he said is associated with righteous regret, authentic anguish, and a godly sorrow. He says, for see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. Church family, I would, I would ask you this question. I'll put it in the collective pronoun. Like, do we mourn over sin this way? My fear is, that for us as believers, and I believe that's why so much of the New Testament is dedicated to putting off the old and putting on the new. My fear is that we often, in ways that can't be seen by the masses, we choose to coexist with sin instead of kill it. Largely because people can't see it. But Jesus is telling you, and he's telling me, that's not where blessing is found. That's not where happiness is found. That's not where life, stability, security, joy, usability, and flourishing is found. Blessed is the one who mourns for he or she will be comforted. And my heart for us is that we find stable happiness in being broken over sin. And we can find that joy because God promises to comfort us. And with my kids over the years, there have been countless moments where I have have stooped down to sympathize with them over an injury, you know, a fall in a driveway, a broken wrist because of rollerblades to my oldest right over here multiple times. There's been countless moments where we've had to extend sympathy to our kids. And a lot of times, I mean, sometimes it's more than this. A lot of times it's just kind of a sympathetic, like, pat on the head, like, hey, it'll be okay. Just get up. Just keep, keep going. But this type of comfort that Jesus describes is not just merely some sympathetic pat on your spiritual head. Now, let me illustrate what I mean. The comfort of God pierces our hearts with how we have spurned God's truth. Like, it starts there. The comfort of God, His moving toward us comes with His fixing our eyes on, giving us clarity that we've broken his law. It pierces our hearts with how we spurn God's truth. It pushes the glory of mercy like deep within our hearts 
It picks us up by his grace and it gives us his power to change. If I could highlight, maybe just distinguish some terms here, and maybe this is helpful for, maybe it's helpful for all of us, maybe some of you in particular, from a terminology, I don't want to assume terminology is understood even from a biblical standpoint. Because when you talk about justice in the Bible, you could argue maybe in general, justice is you and I getting what we deserve. That's what justice is. Okay? Mercy in the Bible is God withholding from us what we deserve. Namely, his judgment and his wrath. So justice is you and I getting what we deserve. Mercy is God withholding from us what we actually deserve. And grace is getting what we don't deserve. And that's a fairly apt summary of what happens in the gospel. Is it because you and I have broken God's law, what we deserve is judgment. Because God has to punish sin and law-breaking, there has to be a punishment for sin. And he can withhold from us what we deserve because he poured out all of it on Jesus as a sacrifice in our place. So he treats Jesus according to our sin. And by a miracle of grace, he affords to us, he distributes to us everything that Jesus is and was. Namely, righteous in the sight of God, we get to become. And the comfort of God, central to it, is this understanding of what we deserve and what we've actually been given from God. In a really interesting way, the word comfort here in Matthew 5 is the same, it's a verb form of the same words that are titles for both the Holy Spirit and Jesus in the New Testament. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. And here's what we hear in John 14, 26. Jesus talking about how it's good that he goes because the Holy Spirit's going to come. He says this, but the helper, same word, same root word, the helper, the comforter, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I've said to you. God pierces our hearts through his comfort with the fact that we violated his law. He leads us to remember what his word says, confronts us with how we fall short of it, which is the pathway to biblical mourning. But the helper is God's vessel, his vessel of mercy in the heart of the believer to remind us and teach us and cause us to remember what God has said. So there's the place where it refers to the Holy Spirit as the helper or the comforter. In 1 John 2, 1, let this be good news to you this morning. I want you to take this in, just fully, like, bathe in just the extraordinary magnitude of God's kindness to us as lawbreakers. John says this, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. That's the heart of the believer. I don't want to sin. I don't want to take advantage of the grace of God. The word of God is written to the hearts of believers so they may not sin and honor God in this life. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate. It's the same word, comforter, 
with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. The only reason there can be life found in mourning is because Jesus offers comfort to transgressors. It's the only reason you can take a moment of examination and find in your heart all these shades of sin and failure and feel like you can open your eyes to anything but condemnation is because of Jesus Christ, the comforter, the advocate, that when you sin, Jesus in his remarkable grace stands in the Father's presence pleading his shed blood and his righteousness for his people. And what I want to do now before I even close the message, is I want to give us a few minutes to reflect. Because it can be hard at the end of the service when we just close off to feel like we have a moment just to pause. My guess is, my hope and my prayer is that you've probably been stirred to consider in your own life. Like, how does my life not align with righteousness? Probably ways that you feel that. And it's appropriate to examine, to lead to a place of mourning over those things and being comforted by the grace of God. I want to invite you to bow your head just for a minute. I want to invite you to bow your head and I want you to, I want you just to ask yourself the simple question, God, is there anything in my life that doesn't align with your vision for me as a child of God? And it may be that for some of you, you realize that you've never truly come to a place of absolute surrender where you've realized the depth of your need and become poor in spirit. And my prayer for you is that you'd feel the weight of how poor you are spiritually, that you might be filled with all the fullness of God through the person and work of Jesus. Why don't you take a minute? God, we don't like to sit in quiet. And we need the help of your spirit to examine our own lives, to examine our hearts, to see the things that we don't see clearly or or to see the things and acknowledge the things that we like to ignore. So I want to ask now, in this brief moment, that you'd work in the hearts of your people to help us mourn over sin the way that you mourn.
God, you tell us if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God, even the picture of us closing our eyes to examine like the darkness of our own eyelids as we open them up can be a symbol to us of the work of your spirit and the power of your grace to open the eyes of the blind, to bring light to the different shades of darkness in our, our lives and our hearts. And so God, I pray that you'd help us to live lives in keeping with repentance. Help us to mourn over sin that we might find in our confession of our sin the wonderful comfort of the Savior who loved us and gave himself up for us. And God, I want to pray specifically for anyone in this room that feels like they're dealing with a, a particular sin that they just have proven over the course of years, as it were, in their own minds that they can't escape. They feel like this particular sin is destined to follow them their whole life. And God, I pray that the truth of your word the particular truth where you promise that because of your divine power and your promises, we have everything we need for life and godliness. God, I pray that you would crush the deception that's found in those feelings. That we can pursue righteousness and we can kill sin. There's no darkness so great that the light can't penetrate it. There's no chain so strong that they can't be broken by the work of Jesus. And so fill us with that hope and with that truth. We love you. And we pray that you continue to do work through your spirit in our lives for the glory of your great name. Amen. I know it's different to have time even in, uh, toward the end of a sermon to, to examine, um, convince in my own life, and my guess is probably true of you, that we don't spend near enough time in quiet, evaluating our own hearts and probing what's there and asking God to, to lead us into righteousness. I'm going to close with just one brief comment from Psalm 32. Same wording is used in Psalm 32. It says, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, in whose spirit there's no deceit. For when I kept silent, I want you to just take notice of the, the voice given to sin. 
For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me because I didn't speak. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. It seems to echo being poor in spirit. I acknowledge my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters and the difficulty, they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. And in Romans 4, we see the connection here that the shouts of deliverance come because we've been given a righteousness based on faith, not based on works. Be convinced of this. You can be right with God today through faith in Jesus Christ. And that righteousness that's given to you, that's foreign to you, is then played out in your life by being those who remain poor in spirit, the ones that the kingdom belongs to, and those who mourn over sin because we know the definite comfort of God that draws close on a daily and even moment-by-moment basis. Let me invite the worship team up, and I'll pray for us as we get ready to sing one last song together in celebration. Why don't you go ahead and stand with me as I pray. God, we thank you for the overwhelming cloud of grace and mercy that we can meet even when we are faced with our abounding sin and unrighteousness. God, I pray that every single one of us would be amazed at grace this morning. I pray that we would be, particularly for your people, Christians in this room, that we'd be those who remember that there's nothing of any spiritual capacity that commends us to your sight. It's only because of Jesus that we are alive and forgiven and made new. And God, I pray if there's anyone in here that has never known the freedom that's found in the Son it's never known the forgiveness that's found in the cross. It's never known the, the cleansing work of Jesus' life and death and resurrection. I pray that today would be the day. God, you delivered the law on Mount Sinai and prevented the people from coming close because of their guilt. But this new law that Jesus delivers, you invite sinners to draw near because of grace. Blessed is the one whose sins are forgiven. And as we sing this song about you being a good shepherd, the song that we sang last week, God, I pray that we would see before us this picture of you leading us to pastures where there's goodness and righteousness, where it flows freely, where there's blessing and happiness and stability and convince of, of those truths as we sing this song. We love you. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's sing together.